Right, let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're in the last part of this chapter. We'll begin in verse 26. 26 through 40 finishes up Paul's section here on the gifts. And in particular, at this point, he's he's addressing the, the preference for prophecy over speaking in tongues. And as he finishes out, he's he's going to apply this directly to how this might impact the worship of God's people, when they gather together for worship. Beginning in verse 26, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged." And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's shameful for women to speak in church. How about those two verses? We're not going to get to that tonight, by the way. All right? We're not going to get that far. But we will next week. All right. Or did the Word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. With those verses in mind, I have a video I want you to watch. All right?
cameraman doesn't even know where to look. That was enough. First Corinthians fourteen forty. Let all things be done decently and in order. Uh, you know, I, I know we, we watched something like that, and by the way, that uh, that was John Strickland's old church. No, I'm just kidding. All right, it was an unknown. Uh, yeah, he sent that to us when we, uh, yeah, 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 this, you wait for this new church year, all right? We've got, yeah, some things coming. You see me, if you can jump this pulpit, all right, you've done something at that point. You know, you know we see that and you think, so you see the first so-called worship service, and it is, I, I don't know any other word for it, but pure chaos, pure chaos. And then that is what broke down at that other one. The, the man who started that, the older man who was giggling, this is a part of what was called the Holy Laughter Revival. And, I don't, and he, his name's Kenneth Hagin, uh, and uh, a man who, unless he changed his gospel, uh, unless he changed what he was preaching, uh, is spending eternity separated from God uh, be, because of what he, what he preached. Though he claimed you know, to be a believer and was a big name on TBN. All the guys on TBN claim him. In fact, some of them will call him Papa Hagen, which is weird and creepy, all right? And this, this by the way, unless you think that I've picked a, a video clip of something that's unusual and maybe a, a rare part of the evangelical world, this kind of worship service is being practiced by millions upon millions of upon millions of so-called believers. It's kind of par for the course, so to speak. Yet, 1 Corinthians 14, the text that we just read, I think almost requires no commentary on what we just saw. This, this does stand as kind of common practice, in particular when they do revivals and special meetings, camp meetings, these kinds of events you will find these so-called outbreaks of the Holy Spirit. There's just some, there's, there's one glaring issue. None of what you saw has any New Testament 
Scripture to suggest this is appropriate for the worship of God's people. Now, here's often what happens. People will say, well, I was in those meetings, or I saw that, or somebody will say, I know the Spirit was there. It becomes a tricky conversation at that point. Because I'm not going to determine the Spirit's presence based on somebody's experience. I will determine it based on Scripture. And God's Word has made it very clear. Here is what the worship of God's people should look like. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 40, to me, this stands as one of the texts that so clearly addresses a multitude of problems in a lot of churches across our country. Those that claim charismatic Pentecostal kinds of leanings, because even if I were to believe in the ongoing expression of, say, the gift of tongues, miracles and signs as a gift of an individual, the way they are being practiced does not follow what we just read. We'll, we'll track that out as we go. But, but you don't find these churches practicing one person at a time. You don't, you don't find there being then interpretation being offered if somebody supposedly speaks in tongues. And Paul's words are just clear. Everything is to be done decently and in order. So, so tonight, as, as we tackle the final part of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul takes all that he's talked about in regard to the spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues in particular, and now he brings this to bear on the formal worship experience of God's people. How, how does this then come into play when God's people gather together? And this really seems to be the thing to which Paul is building, because uh, Aside from the fact that, that these believers in Corinth are, are faking gifts, uh, they are engaged in selfish and prideful motivations in a lot of these things, Paul's, I think Paul's greatest concern here isn't just for the individual who's acting arrogantly or selfishly or pridefully. His concern is all of this is now coming together when the church comes together, and this is creating chaos and disorder when the people gather for worship. And this, I would argue, is what Paul finds to be most offensive about it all, that rather than this being a a time where God is glorified and the church is edified, people try and use it as an opportunity to show up, to demonstrate their own ability, to show their own spirituality. And so this is what Paul is directly condemning here in 1 Corinthians 14. So tonight as we looked at, at, we've been looking at four principles about how spiritual gifts should operate in the church uh, based on Paul using prophecy and tongues as a case study here. And we're on our fourth one. So if you want to fill in a blank, we go on to the, to the next slide. Paul's fourth and final point is that gifts exercised in worship must be expressed in an orderly fashion. And really, you could even add kind of a subset to that. God expects the worship of His, His worship, worship for Him by His people, He expects this to be done properly. The subject matter, meaning God Himself, is worthy of carefully planned and intentionally created opportunities for worship. Now, That doesn't mean there can't be some spontaneity in features of worship. 
But, but it needs to be done well. It needs to be ordered. It needs to be uh, d- done uh, in a respectful manner, in a manner that is consistent with God's own nature. So here's what Paul's going to do as he finishes this out. He's going he's to introduce this issue to us, verse 26. He's going to lay out this principle. Then he's going to give us three points. It's really kind of like a mini-sermon. He's going to give us an introduction with his main point. He's going to give us three points, and then he's going to end with a conclusion and application. Main idea, three points, and then this conclusion. So he's going to give us the main idea. He's going to talk about what this says about tongues, what this says about prophets. And Paul has some words for the ladies in the house, all right? And we'll, we'll need to set up the context for that tonight. We'll do some of it. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to duck God's Word, all right? And I've told you before, I didn't write the book, okay? There is a book I've written, and you can fuss about me about that one, but this is not one of them, all right? I've not written this. This is not mine. These are not my words. It's God's Word. Waiter, not the chef, okay? So, you may not like what gets delivered next week. I don't know, uh, but I'm, not gonna, I'm also not going to apologize for what God's Word says. I, I will tell you now, it doesn't mean everything you may worry that it means, but it also may mean more than most of our culture thinks it should mean. All right? So when we get to that part next week, we'll, we'll dive into it. But for now, uh, let's, let's start off by just, just walking through you know, the, the argument as Paul makes it. So look in verse 26. He begins with this question, how is it then, brethren? It's kind of an odd question, at least to the English ear, but, but, the way, but Paul's kind of you know, giving us a leading question, so, so to speak. He's saying, so what is this all about? What is the outcome of this? And it's kind of a question that leads out of what he's just talked about. And, and that is, he had, you know, he'd fussed at them in Corinth that, that if everybody is trying to speak in a tongue and a lost person comes in, and nobody's interpreting, and it's a tongue, so it's not legit, it's not real. And, and so, the lost person just thinks everybody's crazy. So Paul's saying, what's the benefit of that? Why would we do that? You, would, you should much prefer prophecy. In other words, the clear, bold preaching of the Word, because that directly impacts the church, and it directly impacts even unbelievers who may come in. And so then he leads into this last part with the question, so what are we to make of all this? What, what should we say about all this? What's, what's kind of, what's kind of the, the bottom line you need to be concerned with? So then he goes on to say, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Now, Paul's concern here, and note, note the phrase. He says, whenever you come together. It's an important phrase. Because he's not saying anytime church people get together. He is, he is speaking about a formal situation. Whenever the church gathers for their main worship gathering. All right. So, whenever you come together. That phrase, come together, is describing the moment when the, when the entirety of the body gathers together for example, on the Lord's day, uh, and would gather together for the purpose of worship and instruction in the Word. And that's going to be an important distinction to make. 
Because when we see the word church, well, what do we think of? Well, we think of buildings sometimes, right? And we think of everything that may happen within this building. So ladies, I'll go ahead and slip you a little bit here, okay? Good news. This passage doesn't mean as soon as you walk through the doors, I better not hear you say a word, all right? Sorry, guys. All right, but that's not it, okay? No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean as soon as you walk through the doors. Because guess what they didn't have in Corinth? Doors to a church building, all right? In other words, that's not how they were meeting. So that's not what he's talking about. But he is talking about this, this time when, when the church would gather for their formal worship. And what's the problem then in Corinth? Everybody's got a psalm. What does he mean by psalm? Well, he means just what it sounds like, a, a, a song, scripture that is, could either be quoted or possibly even sung. So, everybody wants to stand up and, you know, they, they want to pull out the Baptist hymnal and they want to request the song they want, all right? So, everybody's, everybody's doing their own song when they come together. Uh, each of you has one. Each of you has a teaching. And the, the way it sounds to me is like this stuff's happening at, at, at once. In my mind, I think of like the dueling banjo song. You know the one I'm talking about? You know, you know that one? No, you're thinking, I don't have any idea what you're talking about, all right? But, you know, this, this kind of, this guy's doing this, and this guy's doing that, and this lady's doing that, and this lady's doing this. They're kind of all jumbled up into a big chaotic mess. So, so somebody's issuing a teaching. This person's issuing a teaching. Somebody back there is faking tongues, all right? I think in this reference where he says, has a tongue, I think that's a reference to, to not the real thing. As we noted before, chapter 14, in almost every instance but one, one we'll get to in just a minute, when Paul says a tongue, he is talking about the faking of the tongues, all right? When he says tongues, plural, he's referring to the legit gift. So each of you has that. Uh, everybody has a revelation. In other words, you, you claim to have some kind of prophetic pronouncement, and then everybody has an interpretation. Maybe there are folks who are standing up and faking tongues, and somebody else is standing up and claiming to interpret, or the one who's giving the tongue claims to then have the interpretation. This, this is what's going on, and it's, it's not happening in an orderly ma- manner. There's no one designated as leadership. There seems to be no accountability for how this is done. You know, in, in my mind, the other, the other image I had in, in reading this, it, it like America's Got Talent, right? It's like, it's like a variety show where who knows what you're going to see people doing, all right? It could literally be anything and some of the silliest things, right, to people with actual skills. I mean, it could be anything in between. Whatever it is, though, whatever's going on here in Corinth, it is for the sake of the person doing it. The person is doing a psalm or a tongue or a revelation or interpretation because they want recognition. They want to be thought of as spiritual. It is, it is about them. And so to this then Paul says, let all things be done for edification. And then he kind of expands on that. And, and he, you know, he, he wraps the whole thing up then in verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Paul kind of has, these are all the same kinds of ideas. Instead, you should have an operating principle when you come together to worship. It should be, it should be for the sake of the church, for God's glory, and for the edification, for the building up of others. We've already talked about this when it comes to the nature of our gifts. 
God has given us gifts, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the church. This, by the way, is a great argument why people, why you should be in church. If anybody ever asks you, well, I, you know, nowhere in the Bible, well, first of all, if somebody says, nowhere in the Bible is to say you have to go to church, you need to slap them down for that, all right? Because the entire New Testament is written to the church, all right? So, that, don't let them get away with that, all right? I know that sounds really spiritual. My guess is those folks haven't actually read a book that was written entirely to the church, all right? But it was. So, so don't let them get away with that. Plus, how else do you exercise your gift? The New Testament makes it clear the gift is designed for you to be a blessing in the church. In the church. In other words, to other brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of building up, of edification of the church, some may say, well, I've got a gift, but I use it in this community center, or I use it down here at at this location, or I use it at my work. Hey, that's great if you've got gifts and talents that you use in other locations. But if gifts are not exercised in the church, they're not being properly exercised. It's according to the New Testament, all right? That is how the New Testament's putting this. Paul has made this abundantly clear in chapters 12 through 14. And so, that's what he means here again. Let all things be done with edification. Now, an interesting aside here. Though Paul is not teaching on the explicit order of worship, isn't it interesting that he does give us a bit of insight into how the New Testament church worshiped? There was an order to it. There was at least supposed to be an order to it. There is to be singing. There is to be Scripture properly read and taught. This is to be done in the church. It's always interesting to me all of the things people think should be a part of a worship service when, again, there's not necessarily a New Testament reference, but there are New Testament references to things that have to be there. And if they're not there, well, then that's something less than what the Bible would prescribe for worship. So even in this verse, though Paul is largely speaking in a negative sense, uh, he does offer us a bit of an insight into what should be going on in the church. Uh, There should be the proclamation and singing of Scripture and then its proper teaching. All right, so that's his main point, all right? Paul is saying, so if you're going to exercise gifts and if you're going to engage in worship, worship should be orderly. It should be for the sake of everybody else that they might be built up and that God may be glorified. And now he's going to issue some rules for three groups. Three groups of people that he has in mind that seem to be potentially violating what he said here. In other words, these seem to be the the major problems of the worship of the church in Corinth. These things are not being done right. Number one, he first gives us the rule about tongues. The rule about tongues. So if we go on to the next slide, yeah, rules for tongues... And notice how he lays this out. It's really quite simple. I I don't know that there's a whole lot here that requires, you know, in-depth, tricky Greek discussion or theological wrangling or sophistication, except this. So, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Now, it's at this point that I think Paul uses the singular 
as an exception to what he's done in the rest of the chapter. And the context, I think, is what justifies that. In other words, you know, every other time Paul has talked about a tongue, it's always been in the negative. Like it's something that's not understood, nobody knows. In fact, earlier in the chapter he said, the person speaking it doesn't even know. And he kind of gives this sarcastic kind of statement, only God would know. <laughs> only God would know what, what may be, but he doesn't actually mean that. It's just a way of saying, this is unintelligible. However, in this instance, he's talking about something positively. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let let two or three. If he were talking about the fake tongue, he wouldn't tell two or three to do it, right? So, here are the rules. If anyone's going to speak in tongues, first says, let there be two, or at the most three. That's rule number one. It's a limited number of people who should be allowed to speak in tongues. Again, looking at the way this is practiced in a lot of charismatic settings, already we have a violation here. Already we have a violation. It is, it is rarely done like this. There may be some exceptions to this. For the most part, if you watch services, if you were to look at other clips uh, online of this, you will see a lot of folks speaking in tongues, supposedly, all at once. So I, I don't know what you do with 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-seven. then. I don't know what they do with that. Because it says, two or at the most three, then notice the next part, each in turn. The times I've experienced it, and I've been in some settings where people spoke in tongues, everybody was doing it at the same time. Everybody was doing it at the same time. Like there were a dozen people saying whatever they were saying. Paul says two or three, one after another. One goes, then another. Then, so it's in turn. It's ordered, right? And then he gives the key idea. And let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter... Let him keep silent in church. And let him speak to himself and to God. In other words, let him meditate. Let him engage in prayer. Let him spend time thinking about God's Word. But what what he's saying here is, so if somebody claims to have a tongue, but there is no interpreter, then that individual is to stay silent. Here's how I'm taking this, by the way. I'm taking this as Paul suggesting it could be possible. I don't know why God would do this, but this is just, you know, me implying something here, perhaps. That somebody could legitimately have in Corinth, in the day, you know, in this time period at Corinth, could have the gift of tongues and be able to exercise it. Maybe would have a message, but if nobody's there to interpret it, then it's just not to be spoken, it's not to be used. It's not to be said. And that's because of what he said in the previous text. That, that, that tongues is, a, is, a really, is, is of no value if people don't know what's being said. So let it, be, let it be interpreted. Otherwise, let the individual stay silent. Again, I, I find this to be uh, something that is quite often uh, ignored. That this is not the way that it's practiced. That there's not an interpretation of the tongues given. Keep, keep in mind, though, I, I have argued all along, I believe that tongues have ceased uh, as an exercisable gift uh, among the body of Christ. All right, so that's the rule for tongues. Number two, the second group, rule for prophecy. 
the rule for prophets. Prophecy or prophets? Similar kind of language. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. So, so again, it's a limited number. And, and let's make sure we understand what, what we mean, what I mean, perhaps, by the reference to prophet. In the New Testament period of time, there was an office called the office of prophet. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. The apostle office died out with the apostles. The prophetic office then died out in the, in the early part of the New Testament church, along with the gift of tongues. There's, there's nobody now who occupies the office of apostle and the office of prophet as an office, meaning as a role, like, like, like deacon or pastor. And, and one of the justifications for this, if you go to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, letters Paul writes to guys pastoring churches, and he, he goes to the effort of telling them, here's who you should pick for deacons, and here's who you should pick for pastors. Not one word is mentioned about prophets. Not one. They served a unique function in the New Testament before the finalization of the written word, before God gave us, gave the church the books of the Bible, all the New Testament, in order to accurately communicate the gospel, consistently communicate the gospel, ver- verified by the teachings of the apostles, people in churches had the gift of prophecy. They were given words of revelation from God, words from God to be communicated to the church. It served a very specific function. Now, in today's situation, I think people can speak prophetically, but what I mean by that is not that they can tell the future. Those who can speak prophetically are those who can boldly preach and teach the Word and bring it to bear on the lives of God's people. So, they, 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 to, to me, the prophet today would have the ability uh, to really press the Word onto the church. So they're, they're gifted in application then uh, of the doctrinal theological teachings of Scripture. So that's who we're talking about here. In Corinth, we're talking about those who had the office of prophet. Let two or three prophets speak, but then notice the rule. Let others judge. Other, other what? Other prophets. So even then, kind of like the tongue needing to be interpreted, the prophecy was evaluated by other prophets. You couldn't just get up and just spout off something. It it had to be vetted. There had to be a a means by which the words coming out could be verified as being accurate. Then another rule, verse 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. So, if there's one who has gotten up and given a revelation but somebody else, another prophet, gets a word from the Lord, the first guy stops. They don't both keep going. They don't all start speaking. The first guy stops and lets the new guy go. Again, all this is then to be evaluated by the prophets. And then he adds this in verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And he doesn't mean every single person in the church is prophesying. He's just saying, so this is something that all the prophets can do, and they should do it one by one, so that the entirety of the congregation benefits from this. This this leads to edification. 
Then he says in verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, another statement similar to what it said in verse 29. It's a way of saying, so this is all under accountability. That there's, there's verification of the words that are coming from the prophets. And verse 33 then, I think, is, is then a critical verse as he, as he wraps up the issue of tongues and prophecy. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, let, let me give you some good news about that verse. Huh. This doesn't mean that you have to understand everything the Bible says. All right? In other words, if you're sitting there thinking, wow, sometimes on Sundays I'm really confused. All right? And now you may be thinking, and now I learn that's Pastor Scott's fault. All right, so maybe he should sit down and be silent. Let somebody else say stuff, all right? When it says God's not the author of confusion, he means God is not leading people. Now listen to this, church. I cannot press upon us how, how important I think this is. God does not ever, ever, he never has led people to do things that brings chaos, disorder, and confusion to the worship of His people. Ever. So if there's chaos and disorder and confusion descending upon a worship of God's people, something other than God is at work. Now again, this is, this is a big deal I know it may shock you, but I come up against folks who disagree with what I think. Have you, this is gonna, have you ever, uh, have I ever told you, some people call me narrow-minded. Have you ever heard that before? All right, okay, I have. I've been called that. And I've, had, I've even had people say, well, you're just, you're just not open to, the, open to the Spirit. I've been told that, all right? You're just not open <laughs> to the Spirit. And what I want to say is, I'm not open to your Spirit, all right? I am open to the Spirit. I'm just not open to... Your spirit. And this again is the way the discussion will go. And it sounds so sincere. Who am I to judge how the spirit moves? Can't the spirit move however the spirit wants to move? I cannot tell you how aggravating a statement that is. Because that paints you in a corner, doesn't it? It paints you in a corner's way of saying either what, no, no. So suggesting that somehow the Spirit doesn't possess divine sovereignty. Or you have to say yes. And then you're open all kinds of crazy things. I mean, the truth is, the New Testament, for whatever reason, for whatever reason God has designed this to work in this way, God has limited how His Spirit works. God limits it. It's not me. I'm not putting any parameters on the Holy Spirit. I'm not deciding what the Spirit can and cannot do. It's, it's not up to me. But God has said in His Word, God is not the author of confusion. So, so this is the response I think you should make to those who may challenge this. I, I can, in good conscience, challenge somebody who says 
that the way the Spirit works is by causing you to laugh uncontrollably. Have you heard of the other manifestations of the Spirit over the last 20 years? Have you heard of the barking revival? Have you heard of this one? Where people were barking like dogs. Barking like dogs. Have have you heard of the one where, where people were getting stuck to the floor? Claim was they were being slain in the Spirit, all right? Which is, which is not a thing, all right? The claim was they were being slain in the Spirit, and, and you can see video of this. You can go- Google that, all right? And you will see folks who it's like they're stuck to the floor with some kind of, you know, Holy Spirit duct tape, all right? So they're, they're pla- they, 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 claim they, can't, they claim they can't move. And over and over again, here's what people will say when they say they've been, they'll say, I was there and I felt the Spirit. You may have felt something but you did not feel the Holy Spirit. You did not feel the Holy Spirit. Pastor, I, I don't know. I, can you, aren't you running the risk of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. I mean, this, this is what the Word says. God does not operate that way. He doesn't operate that way. Why would He? What do you think an unbelieving world thinks about the thing we saw at the beginning. Do they look at that and think, wow, what a great God? No, they think, wow, that guy's got a vertical leap, right? I mean, that's, that may be what they think. Do other pastors dance on the pulpit? You know, they, they may be thinking, this is exactly what he's getting at in, in 1 Corinthians 14. What are you going to do when unbelievers come in among you? And, and the term he used in verses 20 through 25, they're going to think you're out of your mind. Why would God operate this way? Why would He lead His church to operate this way? How does that advance the kingdom? How does it advance the gospel? How does it edify the church? It doesn't. It doesn't. All right, so next week, I I will shallowly skip right over verses 34 and 35. No, we'll talk about it, all right? And uh, we'll, we'll get into then, because w- women are the third group, uh, and we'll lay the context for that. There seems to be some very particular issues going on in Corinth. Not that I'm going to downplay what Paul says here. Uh, we're going to try and handle it appropriately. Uh, but to, to be very clear then on what the text says uh, about uh, the role of women in the church. And so we'll, we'll expand onto that, all right? Uh, and think, uh, think carefully then about what the Bible has to say to us. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank You again for gathering us. We thank You for time in prayer. We thank You for time in Your Word. Uh, grateful God that You are not a God of confusion. You are a God who grants peace. And this is what should be the case in all the churches of the saints. And we pray, God, You would continue to give us understanding. And we also pray, God, that as, as we, Your people, gather together for worship together, that it is that which pleases you, and edifies the church. God, we want to do what we do in, a, in, a, in an orderly manner and in a manner that reflects your, your own glory and holiness. I just thank you for these who have come out tonight. Thank you for their commitment to being with your people and to be in your word. I pray they would know your hand upon them, grant wisdom and strength 
for the days to come. May we be faithful witnesses for the sake of the gospel. And we ask that you gather us back together again, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.